I, I was thinking this week a little bit uh, because of the, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew 21, uh, starting verse 12. So if you have a Bible or, or a Bible app, you can open up to Matthew 21, verse 12. Um, but I was thinking about the reality of protest in our world. Um, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like in the last number of years, the news has kind of maintained this continual story of protests. So there were always, you know, people protesting something in ways that I don't think were, was true 10 years ago. Uh, if I try and think back, I, it, I don't think it's the 60s, um, you know, from what people tell me. I wasn't there, but... Um, but kind of go back to Occupy Wall Street, right? People setting up their yurts on, on Wall Street or Bay Street or financial districts throughout the Western world to, to protest the economic disparity between the top 1% and the other 99% in culture. Or in the last couple of years, right, since Ferguson, the Black Lives Matter movement that is protesting the, uh, what they perceive to be the unfair treatment of people of color by uh, law enforcement officials, right? Just recently, we had the protests after the American election. And even this week, I don't know if you saw this, uh, people burning the American flag outside of Trump Tower because Trump had tweeted something about, you know, if you burn the American flag, you should lose your citizenship and go to jail for a year. And of course, the next day, people are outside of the Trump Tower burning their American flag. Like, it, it's just this, it's this drivenness to protest. Of course, the Dakota Pipeline protests, the First Nations people protest this pipeline running through um, this land and the way that that is unfolding is horrendous. Uh, but there's this, there's this continual urge in our culture right now to kind of do something public and something big, something to make a statement, to make your mark and to, to, to be able to put your finger on something that's going on in the culture and say, this is not okay. And as I was thinking about the tax, I was thinking about that this week, I was kind of wondering, what would God protest? I mean, for sure, God would protest some of, of those things, but what would God protest? We, uh, we're in the second week of this series called Magic Kingdom, where we're exploring a, a trio of stories where Jesus kind of goes public for the first time to announce that he is the king that God has sent into the world to bring his kingdom into reality. Now, the word kingdom, God's kingdom, by the way, whenever we say God's kingdom, I know we use that phrase a lot. All we really mean is what the world would be like if God were allowed to be in charge, if Jesus were allowed to be in charge, which I believe the world would be a place that's filled with peace and hope and joy and love um, if God were allowed to be in charge. And and basically, the whole point is that's what Jesus came to do. He came to, to make the world the kind of place it would be if God were allowed to be in charge. If people would stop undermining what God is trying to do by making terrible decisions about life and community and so on. And so Jesus announces that he's the king that's come to bring God's kingdom into the world. But it's a very different kind of kingdom than what anybody of his day was expecting. That's why the logo is all like upside down. I walked into uh, Welland last Sunday morning with my oldest daughter. Hi, Welland. And, uh, and my oldest daughter walks in and the logo's on the screen and she does one of these. She's like, hey, 
Disney World is upside down. And I was like, yes, that's exactly it. That is exactly it. That what Jesus came to do is like Disney World, but upside down. Right? Came to create the happiest place on earth, but to do it in a Jesus-y way. And so he comes riding in as the king in last week's text, and everybody thinks he's going to ride in on a white horse and, and kick butt and take names and run the Romans out of town and claim his throne and usher in this golden age of prosperity and peace. And it's not what Jesus does at all. He, he comes into Jerusalem, and instead of fighting the Romans, he surrenders to them, and instead of defeating them, uh, they crucify him on a cross. And the kingdom comes through Jesus' death and resurrection in ways that nobody could have predicted it's just what jesus came to do in so many ways is so different than anything we would have ever expected and the question we asked last week was would you still lay your life down in front of jesus and let him be king would you would you submit your everything to jesus even if it turns out to be nothing like what you imagined well we we pick up the story, like it says, like I say, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, where Jesus is now in the city of Jerusalem. And it says this. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts. Jesus entered the temple courts. Now, if you're a pilgrim and you're coming down to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, and you're arriving from the Mount of Olives, you're kind of coming from the eastern side of the city, um, the first place, you're going to enter the city through the east gate and you're going to essentially end up right beside the temple. That's the, that's the part of the city that you go into. The temple is right there. And so it kind of makes sense that Jesus, the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. In, in 2008, my wife and I went to uh, Italy for a couple weeks and we were going to end our time in Italy in Rome. That was, of course, where we we flew in, and so on that first day, we flew in, threw our stuff in the hotel, and the first thing we did is walk down to the Colosseum. We had no plans to see it, no plans to tour it. No, we, you know, we were going to do all of that later when we came back to Rome at the end of our vacation. But you just, you just want to see it. You want to be able to, to drink it in, right, to just experience it. And so Jesus comes into the city, and the first thing he does is he goes to the temple because the temple in Jerusalem is even more iconic for the Jews than the Colosseum is for the Romans or, you know, Italians now. Um, this temple for them symbolizes everything that it means for them to be Jewish. Right, it's the, it's the centerpiece of their worship. This is where, in their understanding, this is where the living God meets with them. The God who chose them among all the peoples to be his people, he, he lives, actually I have a picture of the temple, we'll just put it up. He, you can see right in the middle that, that um, complex there, that there's that building there and it's got an outer courtyard with the wall around it. The Jews believe that God lived right there inside that building, inside the sanctuary. There's kind of a back room that the presence of God, this is where the Jews believed that the presence of God was most keenly experienced. And then you've got the, the, in the outside of that building, there's a wall, and on the, you know, towards the building side of that wall is the courtyard of the priests. That's where men and priests could go. And then there's the courtyard of the women. And then the big, wide-open space in the, inside the grounds there, that's called the courtyard of the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles, if you weren't Jewish, you were allowed to go in, but you were only allowed to go in that far. And if you wanted to participate in worship, you could participate, but only in that space. Right. And so Jesus, 
he, uh, you know, he comes, he goes first to the temple because the temple is the center of everything for the Jews. Um, in fact, especially, I, I mentioned this story last week, 200 years before Jesus, the Greeks occupied and invaded Israel and they defiled the temple and uh, under the general Simon Maccabeus, the Jews defeat the Greeks and they chase them out of the temp- country and they restore the temple. They de-defile it. I don't know what the right word is. They file it, maybe. Um, they undefile the temple and they celebrate. And ever since then, the temple becomes like this symbol of their purity that, or of their freedom, that God is going to set them free. In the 50 years before Jesus is born, King Herod, who is the king of the Jews, spends like a gajillion dollars renovating and expanding the temple. In fact, one rabbi says, if, no, if you have not seen Herod's temple, you just have never seen a beautiful building. This was just for them. This was the everything about what it meant to be Jewish, right? Like the, I don't know, the White House for Americans, or I, I don't know what it would be for Canadians. Maple Leaf Gardens before it shut down? I don't know. I'd have to ask somebody who cares about the Maple Leafs. It's not the ACC. But anyway, they, they, this is the place, right? But more than that, Jesus goes to the temple because that's what kings do. Jesus just claimed to be the king that's bringing God's kingdom. And in the Jewish way of thinking, the king and the temple go together. Right? King David is the greatest king Israel ever had. And he was the one who moved worship to Jerusalem. He was the one who made the plans to build the temple. His biological son, Solomon, the son of David, which is a title for Messiah. The son of David was the king who built the temple. And all the way through Israel's history, the king is kind of responsible to maintain the holiness and to supervise the worship in the temple to the point where the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, not only would he defeat their enemies, but he would restore their temple. So Jesus announces himself to be king, and the first thing he does, the first order of business, is to go to the temple. And this is what it says, verse 12. Entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, who's buying and selling there, right? This is, so you got to understand what's happening here. These pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem from all over Israel to participate in the Passover festival. And one of the religious obligations of participating in Passover is you have to make a sacrifice. It has to be the most expensive animal that you can afford of a certain age. And this is the most important thing. It has to be unblemished. It has to have no defects whatsoever. Well, think about a pilgrim like Jesus. He's coming from 100 miles, 150 kilometers north of the temple. And he's got to make a sacrifice when he gets to Jerusalem. Is he seriously going to bring an animal with him for 150 kilometers on foot? It's going to take him a week to get there. He's going to walk with an animal for 150 kilometers and gamble every day that this animal is not going to somehow injure itself, break a leg, get attacked by a wild animal, die along the way, and now you're halfway to Jerusalem and you don't have an animal to sacrifice because yours is now defective or it's dead or something. Like it was just the most impractical arrangement. It was like, it would be like driving, taking a road trip to Argentina with your great Dane in your hatchback, right? Like I'm not doing it. It makes no sense. And so what they did is they set up this system. You don't need to bring an animal you buy one when you get here, right? All you need to do is you show up with some cash on hand 
And you can buy, you know, sheep or a dove, whatever it is that you can afford. You can buy the salt, the grain. You can buy the oil and the wine. Whatever it is that you need to offer with the sacrifice, you can buy it all right on hand. It's like this amazingly convenient system. Right? It's like drive-through worship. So, right, the, but the problem is you've got to bring cash and there's only one kind of currency accepted in the temple. The, the Tyrian half shekel is the only currency accepted in the temple and it's not accepted anywhere else. It's not cash you use and everywhere else in life. You use a Roman or a Greek coin, but in the temple you can only use the Tyrian half shekel. Like who has those? It's like going to the food court at the, Penn Center or this or um, the Seaway Mall, and they only accept yen. Like, what, what do I do now? Well, you go to the Continental Currency Exchange, right? That's why they have it there in the mall. Go to the Continental Currency Exchange and get some yen and get over to the food court. And that's the deal, right? You show up, you're going to buy yourself a pre-certified, defect-free, sacrificial animal. But before you do that, you got to convert your currency into the temple currency, the Tyrian half shekel, so that you can pay your temple tax, because Passover time is tax time. You pay your temple tax, and then you buy your sacrifice, and you take it to the priest, and he offers it to God, and then you have your party, and that's what it meant to celebrate Passover. In the year, the year that Matthew tells this story of this this year that Jesus does this, or a year or two earlier maybe, the high priest Caiaphas gave permission to everybody to move all of that financial business from outside the temple into the courtyard of the Gentiles. He says, you know, it makes no sense that you got to come into the city and then go over there and exchange your coinage and buy your animal and then bring it all the way back here and sacrifice it here just... So he said, why don't we just set up shop right here in the courtyard of the Gentiles? So all the vendors move their booths into the courtyard of the Gentiles. And Jesus walks in to the courtyard of the Gentiles and is struck with this scene. Right? It's just chaos. Um, The gospel according to Mark says that Jesus started immediately kind of preventing people from walking through the courtyard. Everyone's walking around carrying stuff like people are restocking tables and moving cash boxes and bringing animals here and there. The whole place has the feel of like a back shop warehouse, right? People are moving around and getting work done and Jesus is making everybody stop. In the gospel according to John, it says that he flips over the tables and he sends the coins flying and he fashions a whip out of rope and he drives the animals out of the temple and he starts yelling at the vendors, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. Like Jesus is furious. Jesus stages a protest, right? I don't think this is just Jesus losing his cool. This is Jesus, in, and although he is angry, I think, but this is Jesus intentionally engaging in a prophetic protest, intentionally engaging in this behavior to draw attention to something that he wants to put his finger on as a significant problem in Jewish culture. And so he, like, he flips over the tables and he's kicking over people's chairs and he basically is trying to drive everybody out of the courtyard of the Gentiles. And here's why. Verse 13. This is what Jesus says. He says, it is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
Jesus basically quotes two Old Testament prophets to explain why he's so angry at what he finds in the temple. Why he launches this public protest of the buying and the selling and the currency exchange. And the first thing he says is, this space is supposed to be a house of prayer. That is a quote from an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, somebody who prophesied and wrote about 800 years um, before Jesus. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, which is a part of Isaiah's prophecy where Isaiah is predicting what the kingdom of God is going to be like, what things are going to be like after the Messiah, the king, shows up and begins to bring healing and restoration to the world, that begins to make the world the kind of place that God always wanted the world to be. And in Isaiah 56, Isaiah talks about what life is going to be like in the temple when the king comes. And this is what he says. I'll start in verse 6. This is a longer section out of which Jesus quotes. But it says in verse 6, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring into my holy mountain, which is the temple, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Isaiah says this, this is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. What the Messiah is going to do is he's going to turn the temple into a place of prayer. And not just prayer for the Jews, not just prayer for the people who already go to the temple to pray. The temple is going to be a place where everybody is welcome. You, you read the longer passage, still the whole chapter, and Isaiah talks about how eunuchs will be welcome in the temple area. The Jewish law says that eunuchs are not allowed in the temple because of the ways their body and their their personhood is broken. They're too broken to be in the temple. Foreigners are allowed in the temple. Remember I said the court of the Gentiles, that large courtyard, that was the only place that somebody who wasn't a Jew was allowed to go. And Isaiah says, no, not when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, Gentiles will be invited, invited into the temple and they will sacrifice and God will be pleased with their sacrifice. He talks about those who are exiled, who are scattered, those who have drifted away. And basically, and saying they're going to be invited back, they're going to be brought back to the temple, into the presence of God. Basically, what Isaiah is saying is when the Messiah comes, the temple is going to become a place for the broken, a place for the scattered, for those who have drifted away. It's going to be a place for the outcast and the outsider and the backslider. It's going to be a place for everybody. Everybody will be welcome to come to the temple because it's going to be a place for prayer. Right? That's what the temple is for. It's a place of prayer. They, they go to give sacrifices, but sacrifices are kind of the external symbol. Prayer is the inner reality. What God wanted was not animals on an altar. What God wanted was for people to pray, for people to be in a relationship with him. That's why those 
you know, there were twice a day, there were sacrifices for the whole nation made at the temple, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And those who couldn't be at the temple for those sacrifices would stop whatever they were doing at that moment of the day, wherever they were, and they would pray to join in with what was happening in the temple. Isaiah says, this is what the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is going to create a space in the presence of God for the broken, for those who've drifted away, for the outcast and the outsider and the backslider, where everybody is going to have a space to pray, to be in relationship with God, to be in the presence of God. That's why Jesus is so angry. This court of the Gentiles is the only place that they have to come and to pray. And imagine, Jesus said, this is supposed to be a place of prayer, not a place of business. Imagine coming into that space and trying to pray. And as your head is bowed, your eyes are closed or whatever, they stood actually with their eyes facing heaven. And you're trying to pray and people are yelling all around you. I need two more sheep over here. And people are bartering back and forth and folks are walking by, stalking and tables and chatting with each other and there's a sound of animals and it's all the commotion of an open air market and you're just trying to stand there and pray and have some time with God and you can't and Jesus walks in and he sees all of this happening and he says this is not okay this is not what God wants what God wants is for there to be a space in his presence for people who feel like they've not been invited into his presence. And I wonder whether there aren't some in our three locations this morning. That's all you needed to hear. That's what you came for today. Because you think of yourself like the Gentiles, so to speak, right? Like, because when you think of yourself, you don't think you belong in the presence of God. That you're just too broken because of who you've been or because of what you've done or because of what's been done to you, your damaged goods now, and how could God want, or the community want, anything to do with you? When you think of yourself, you think of yourself as one of those exiles, one of the ones who's drifted away. And now you sometimes feel like you're probably too far gone for God to want to have you in his presence. Or you think of yourself as an outcast or an outsider backslider, somebody who maybe has been told or maybe has just gotten the sense that you're, you're just really not welcome here. You're not really a part of us. And the message that you need to absorb out of this text this morning is really simple, and it's just this. Jesus showed up, and he flipped over tables to make a space for you in the presence of God. Jesus' whole life, he came, he was born, like we've been celebrating this month. He was born, he lived, he taught, he healed, he died, he was raised to send one overarching, blaring message. And that is, no, there is a place for everybody. That's what Jesus does. He's inviting you into the presence of God and he wants you to come. And you know what God wants from you? All God wants from you is prayer. And, and what is prayer if it's not just relationship? It's just talking to God about you and about your life and about others that you're in relationship with and about the world. And it's about listening to God. Talk to you about you and about your life and about others in the world. To talk to you through 
your spirit to talk to you through scripture, to talk to you through other people, to talk to you through service, to talk to you through being in relationship with people who are different than you, serving the poor, to just however God gets through to you. Prayer is about bringing your life in authenticity and intimacy and vulnerability, bringing your life into relationship with God and accepting God's life in relationship with you and just allowing yourself to have a relationship with the God who created the universe. And Jesus came and flipped over tables to make sure that there was a space for you to experience that. And if that's you this morning, I hope that you hear in this story Jesus fighting for you. And I hope you experience in our community us fighting for you for you to have that space among us and in the presence of God. Because honestly, that doesn't always happen. And that is, frankly, what Jesus is protesting. The other passage he quotes is from Jeremiah chapter 7, where he says, you have turned this into a den of robbers. Now, there are a lot of people who feel that what Jesus is protesting is some sort of economic injustice in the buying and selling. And, and honestly, it was probably going on. One, there's one uh, writer from the ancient world who says, you know, the price of doves had gotten so bad that even the poor, it was supposed to be a sacrifice for the poor, but the poor couldn't even afford them anymore. Um, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. That word robber is the Greek word lestes. And a lestes, literally speaking, is someone who takes by force, right? So you get the, why it's translated robber, you know, stick them up, that kind of thing. But the way it was used in the first century, it was used to mean revolutionary. Someone who takes by force. Someone who was going to take their country back from the Romans by force. I, I, I hate to say it, somebody pointed out to me this is my second week in a row with a Donald Trump reference but there's really no better analogy to, there's no better way to explain this it w- they were people who were going to stop at nothing to make Israel great again um, they shared that nationalistic fervor that the darker side of Trump's campaign exposed of people who believed that there was something superior about them and about us and something inferior about them so that my duty and responsibility is to get rid of them in order that we can reclaim this place for us that's what that's the spirit of first century jewish nationalism right like not to be cutesy about it but immigrants had moved in and had taken all the high power positions and their commitment was to send them packing and to send them back where they came from in order to claim their country for themselves again. That was the spirit of what was going on in Israel. And for them, it wasn't about white supremacy and whatever those dark parts of the Trump movement are all about. It was about Jewish nationalism. It was about the temple. It was about that God has chosen us and God lives among us, that God loves us more than God loves them, that God is pleased with us in a way that God is not pleased with them, that God has accepted us in a way that God has not accepted them. And with this spirit of arrogant superiority judging everybody else. So why set up booths in the courtyard of the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles don't matter to God. That's the whole spirit of what's going on in the text, what makes Jesus so mad. 
And he says to them by quoting Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7 is a sermon that Jeremiah gave predicting the destruction of the temple because of the way the Jews were behaving. And later on in the sermon, this is what it says. Verse 14, therefore, what I did to Shiloh, which was the first place the Jews worshipped in Israel, and it was destroyed by God's enemies, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did to your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim, way back when. Jeremiah, Jesus is saying to the Jews, quoting Jeremiah, he says, you think that you're so close to the heart of God, you think that God loves you and accepts you, and embrace you because you do all this religious stuff because you're living this religiosity because of your theology, because of your behavior, your supposed godliness. You think you're doing everything to impress God. And guess what? Your heart for them, actually your heart against them, betrays just how far you are from the heart of God. And he says, quoting Jeremiah, that while what the Messiah is going to do is flip tables to create a space to invite outsiders in, at the very same time, that flipping of the tables is a warning to the insiders that if they don't repent, they're going to find themselves out. That's the upside-downness of the kingdom. That because of people's hearts towards God, the outsiders find themselves in the presence of God. And those who assume themselves to be insiders find themselves on their way out. And, And the reason this text grabs my heart is because I think there are still strains of this spirit alive in the church where we get it into our heads, and I'm, I mean we, me included, where we get it into our heads that somehow we just believe we're getting it righter than other people. Because of our theology and beliefs, because of our behaviors, because of how we understand what the scriptures called us to do, because of our godliness, because of whatever it happens to be, that somehow God is more pleased with us than he is with them. And that God embraces us in ways that he doesn't embrace them. That God accepts us in ways that he doesn't accept them. That God loves us in ways that he doesn't love them. And in in its darkest moments, it manifests itself in behavior towards others. Rooted in a belief that if I want to honor God, I honor God by dishonoring them. I love God by refusing to love them, by not caring. Just like the Jews didn't care about the Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles because they just didn't care. They didn't, the Gentiles didn't deserve to be there. And Jesus flips over the table as a warning to the Jews to say those who live with that kind of superior Uh, attitude that says God loves us in ways that he just doesn't love other people because of what we've done. If that's your heart attitude, Jesus says, you just are so far from the heart of God. But every warning of judgment is an invitation to grace. It's an invitation to repent. And I think the repentance Jesus is inviting us into is to follow him, to do what he does, to become people who flip tables in order to create space for others, for the broken, for those who've drifted away, for the outcast and the outsider and the backslider and the people we disagree with, to be people who are proactively flipping tables to make space for everybody else in the presence of God. Because friends, that's why Jesus came. That's why he came. 
to create space for all of us in the presence of God so that we can pray, so we can come to him in relationship. We can give ourselves to him and receive himself in us. That's what Jesus was all about, his life and his death and his resurrection, which we're going to celebrate this morning in taking the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper, communion, celebrates two things for us this morning. As you come and and receive the elements, and you'll receive instructions about how to do that in just a minute, but as you come and receive the elements, there are two things I want you to be taking into your spirit. Number one, Jesus did this for you. Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he was raised in order to flip over tables, right? To invite you to this table, to flip over tables, to create space for you in the presence of God, to invite you into the presence of God, even though you were broken, and you had drifted away, and you were an outcast, and you were an outsider, and you were a backslider, and Jesus said, I don't care, you're forgiven, come into the presence of God. And as you come to the table this morning, I want you to receive the, the, the bread and receive the juice. And I want you to receive the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And as it goes down your throat and into, as you take into yourself the grace of God, the beauty of what Jesus has done for you, I want you to hear the invitation of God for you to now leave the table and go and do that for someone else. To leave the table and go and do what Jesus did. To turn over tables. To flip over tables. To invite people into the presence of God. To be the one who's creating the space that invites others in. So that they can experience the grace and the joy and the hope and the love that we've known in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh. God, as we barely begin to scratch the surface of the beauty of the depth and the marvel and the wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us, I pray that you would grip our hearts. Let us know your grace. Let us know your forgiveness. Deep in our spirit, let us know that we're loved, not because we believe the right things or not because we behave the right ways or we're godly enough or we worship the right way or we've somehow earned it, but Because when we were broken and far from you and an outcast, an outsider and a backslider, you showed up and made a space for us. Can we please be fed with that grace, that forgiveness? Can we we guzzle it down this morning? And then as we leave the table, would you fill us up with the love for others? so that we can become the kinds of people who do what you did. Flipping over tables to make space for everyone else. In the presence of God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.